I'm going to ask you to do something this morning that I typically shy away from, but I think uh, it would be good for us, and it might say something about us as well. How many of you believe that Christians have spiritual gifts? Let me see you raise of hands. Okay? Now, how many of you can name your spiritual gift? <laughs> Cautiously, a few hands go up. <laughs> I'm not totally surprised. That is, I would say, broadly the case in most American churches. I want to continue uh, looking at 1 Corinthians this morning as we look at the beginning part uh, of chapter 12. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 in Corinthians deals with spiritual gifts within the church of Corinth. Now, I understand if some of you are kind of wondering about that because chapter 13 is known as the love chapter, and it is the love chapter, but the love chapter is given in the context of Paul's discussion or writings to the Corinthian believers about spiritual gifts. And as I've contemplated and studied this passage and the subject of spiritual gifts, I am convinced that I and probably all of us have had limited and probably even presumptive ideas that may or may not correlate to what Scripture actually teaches. Um, I don't claim to understand this fully, but as I've studied these chapters, and um, you know, I am convicted of one thing, that maybe our focus is on the wrong things. Um, this is a complex subject, and we're only going to start exploring this today. I've entitled this morning's message, Supernatural Gifts of Grace. And we're only going to be looking, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I invite you to stand as we read this together at this time. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were, as ye were led. Wherefore I give, unto you, give to you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord except by the Holy Ghost. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to the one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and self same Spirit, 
dividing to every man severally as he will. You may be seated. I'm going to be looking at this section, this passage of scripture, this text this morning in three sections as we just continue to explore uh, what Paul is instructing the Corinthians to do here. Now, I, I read that intentionally from the King James Version, and I'm, as I go back through here, I'm going to be using the ESV as well, but I think it's important to have both of these translations, some of the words and so forth, uh, I believe it's important to have both of these translations. So first of all, we want to look at the first three verses and the fact that the Holy Spirit itself is a supernatural gift. Um, I'm just going to read the first three verses again. Now, concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray but to mute idols, however you were are however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So at the beginning of this chapter, or yeah, here in chapter 12, Paul is again changing the subject. Remember chapter 11? um, Well, chapters 8 through 10, he was talking about the things of meat offered to idols, those things that are neither right nor wrong necessarily. In chapter 11, we have the headship order, followed by communion, and now he's talking about, now he's shifting and he starts out now concerning spiritual gifts. And basically that first verse could be paraphrased as, I want, to, want you to know some things about spiritual gifts. Um, that he, he just wants to explain some things regarding spiritual gifts. Verses 2 and 3 seem to, is like, what does this have to do with spiritual gifts? And we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later. But this isn't the first time that Paul referenced spiritual gifts. Back in chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, <clears throat> Paul wrote this, I give thanks to my God always for you. He's complimenting the Corinthians in spite of their problems because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in all speech and in all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul here in the first chapter acknowledges that they really are not lacking in gifts, in spiritual gifts. And this is the same word that is used here throughout chapter 12. The Corinthian church was blessed with an abundance of gifts, a variety of gifts, a good mix of gifts, but they weren't using them properly, uh, as we will see um, throughout this study in these several chapters. In verses 2 and 3 in uh, of chapter 12, I'm not going to try to go through here phrase by phrase. I don't know that I fully understand what all he's talking about, about the fact of Jesus is accursed or Jesus is Lord, and as far as exactly what he's getting to, but what I do see 
is that he is contrasting the dumb idols, as they're called in the King James, or mute idols, those objects that were worshipped that could do nothing. And he is contrasting that with the living person of the Holy Spirit. And there's just such a huge difference there. There was, prior to becoming believers, the majority of the Corinthian would have worshipped idols that literally could do nothing. They were inanimate objects. Yet, there was something about that, there was a spiritual dimension to false religions that was deceptively appealing as well. I mean, because that's what they followed. There was something about that that also attracted them. But whatever that was, was so stale compared to what the Holy Spirit has to offer. Paul is emphasizing in contrast that the Holy Spirit is so much more. And apart from the spiritual gifts themselves, the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit that has given, been given to believers is so far superior to anything that pagan religions can offer. The Spirit of God is living, personal, powerful, and every believer has the promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Not based on the gifts, but that's a promise that precedes the giving of the gifts. And the Holy Spirit also reveals and confirms truth, the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and anything other than that is, is false. Dumb idols can neither confirm or reveal anything. They are just that. They are dumb or mute idols. And as I've, as I've studied this, as I read this, it seems like in many ways this chapter is as much or maybe more about the Holy Spirit than it is about the gifts themselves. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Because the Holy Spirit is the one behind each of the gifts. And so it's, it's about the giver. Do we understand or appreciate the significance and the power of the Holy Spirit both in our church collectively, but in our lives individually as well? I counted nine times in these first 11 verses where the Spirit is named. And in addition to that, I think there's a couple of times where it's, the Spirit is referenced as He. Paul is wanting these believers in Corinth to become more aware and focus on the Holy Spirit rather than on each other or specific gifts and so forth. And I think we should do the same. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit is a supernatural gift for each one of us. Going on now to verses 4 through 7. <clears throat> now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in all. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit 
for the common good. This, these verses, I believe, clearly um, contrasts or illustrates that the Holy Spirit, in a supernatural way, unifies in diversity. Because he's using all of these, he used the word varieties here. The King James uses either uh, diversities or differences. Um, but, but there's these vast array of types of things, but it's all unified in one in the church of God. The church has many different kinds of people, yet it is unified in purpose. So there's varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities or operations, the same God. The Trinity is identified here in these statements. I don't know if you thought about it. Spirit, Lord, and God. Now, it's in reverse order from what we typically think about. We think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here it's mentioning the Spirit first, then the Son, and then the Father. Um, we'll get to that or think about that just a little bit more. But as we are going to see in chapter 14, the Corinthians were emphasizing or even idolizing some gifts while being dismissive or derogatory about other gifts of the Spirit. And Paul's making the case here, yes, people are different, and they may have very different gifts, but that does not diminish the possibility or the prospect of unity and being, we need to be unified about something more, far more significant than ourselves and, and what we think. And so, um, and I think that unity is, again, kind of, Identified, you see it kind of in each of these phrases, but then beyond that, we have the, the Trinity there, as I mentioned, alluded to, that we have the Spirit, the Lord, and God, and there's unity within that Godhead. Even though they're different, there is unity there in their diversity as well. The Godhead has different functions, different manifestations, but there's one God. Fully unified diversity. And that's the reality that should be reflected within churches. What about the varieties of gifts, the varieties of service, the variety of activities? These phrases have, have puzzled me, and I don't know that I have fully figured out or understand what they mean now. But let's, let's look at each of these individually. And the first one... We have the variety, uh, varieties of gifts, the same spirit. The word gifts used here is charismata in the Greek. That's the plural form. Charisma, as we would know it, is the uh, singular form. And the literal translation of that is grace gift. It is a gift of grace. What I found fascinating is that this is a word that is uniquely used by Paul. 
It is found 17 times in the New Testament, 16 of those times in letters written by Paul, one time in Peter's letter. But what's even more intriguing to me is that this word is not found at all in other Greek literature. So it was not something that is, was found in Greek literature outside Paul's writings, Paul and Peter's writings, in the first century, with one exception in Philo. Um, the one, it's used one time, but it was written after Paul's letters were penned. And so this seems to indicate that this literally is a word that Paul, the Holy Spirit, crafted to describe something that was totally unique to Christianity. Nothing else like it existed. Now, for us, we're kind of familiar with the, the root word. We're, you know, it wasn't until the mid-1900s that the word charisma gained any kind of popularity in the English language or that it was used broadly in the English language. Merriam-Webster defines charisma as a personal magic of leadership arousing special popular loyalty or enthusiasm for a public figure such as a political leader. And that's how we think of the term charisma. Or the second definition was a special magnetic charm or appeal. And it was also within in the mid-20th century when the term charismatic movement was crafted or the word charismatic came into usage in the English language. But when you look at the context, that has nothing to do with what the way that it is used in Scripture. Charisma or charismata literally means gifts of grace given by the Holy Spirit. There are varieties or different kinds of charismata or gifts of grace, but it's always by the same spirit. That same spirit is the source of these supernatural gifts of grace. Then there's the varieties of service and the same Lord. The Greek word for service here is diakonai, I'm not sure that I'm saying that correctly, but it means service, ministry, table service, to serve others. Um, and you may notice a resemblance, but the word that we translate, the word deacon in the English language is derived from the Greek word here. Um, R.C.H. Lenski translate this Greek word as menstruations rather than administrations, but he defines it as services freely rendered by us for the benefit of others. Services freely rendered by us for the benefit of others. So there's varieties or different ways, different kinds of service and ministry and the way that we would do that but it's the same Lord Jesus Christ. And our service for the benefit of others 
in the body honors the entire body of Christ, as well as the head. Jesus Christ, as we'll see in verse 27 uh, of this chapter, he says, now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. That We are the body of Christ, and, and this is for serving the full body of Christ. Our service for others within the body is serving Jesus Christ himself as it's his body. And then the variety of activity, varieties of activities or operations in the same God. Now this word, the Greek word, as you can tell, is the word from which we would derive our English word energy or energizing. And it means an activity or an act or a deed or an effect. And Lenski here defines this word as energies, active forces, operations that result from, listen to this, imparted spiritual energy. So this is, it comes out of what the Spirit has infused and given us power for. Varieties of activities or energies, but the same God. But what's interesting with this verse, if you go back and look in verse uh, 6, Paul doesn't just stop. With the others, he stopped right after the same Spirit, the same Lord, same God, he continues, who empowers, and again, that word empowers is from another form of this same word energy, uh, energizes, who empowers them, the charismata, the gifts of grace in everyone. So God energizes or empowers these gifts of grace that are placed in everyone by the Spirit. The same Spirit gives us grace, gifts of grace. The same Lord receives our service for others in his body, the church. And the same God is the power behind the spiritual energies we exercise through these gifts of grace. He energizes all these grace gifts in everyone. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in the manifestation of the spiritual gifts that have been given to believers. In a lot of ways, the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapters 12 to 14, is simply elaborating on some of these concepts in these, these several verses about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of grace. Spiritual gifts are integral to the design and the function of the body of Christ. They're critically important to the church, for the church to be and to become what God intended. At the same time, we, have, we can't ever forget what these gifts really are. They are grace gifts given by the Holy Spirit to serve others, not ourselves, in the body, and the power to do so comes from God himself. 
And when we end up using our natural abilities to enhance or to promote ourselves, calling them spiritual gifts, we destroy both the beauty, well, the, the beauty, the process, the purpose, and the power of the supernatural gifts of grace that really are there for us. Now, continuing in verses 8 through 12, 11. <clears throat> for to one is given, and I, I want you to notice here the frequency that the same or the Spirit is referenced in these few verses. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, and to a, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Five times in these verses, the Spirit is named. Each time reinforcing that it is the same Spirit that is giving these various and diverse gifts. One is not superior to another. It's not worth boasting about. There's not anything to boast about, but the source is the same for all of these gifts. And then there's the list of the gifts. Um, and I'm not going to have time to elaborate on these in depth this morning. The first two are clearly a pair. Um, the utterance or word of wisdom and knowledge, they're very similar, maybe more of an intellectual type gift perhaps. The next five beginning with faith, are more the faith-type gifts. Uh, faith, gifts of healing, working of miracles, prophecy, and discernment of spirits. Um, but it's interesting that the phrases for gifts of healings and the working of miracles is unique from the, all the other gifts in this list. And what this indicates from the original languages is that a person does not necessarily have the gift of miracles or the gift of healings, but rather these gifts were manifest at specific times in specific situations miraculously without a person necessarily having that gift. But it was more that just randomly, not randomly, but, but very uh, specifically these miracles would occur and maybe never to be repeated again, but God's people were used in those miracles. <clears throat> and so it's very different than the others in that there, it was a, an ongoing kind of a gift. This was more of a specific or one-time kind of gift. And then the last two on tongues, the uh, various tongues are a pair as well. Now, I don't believe that I'm the only one that probably has had some of these thoughts. But, you know, the one thing that has been puzzling and even confusing to me about spiritual gifts is that there's not only one list of spiritual gifts given in Scripture. Rather, there are multiple times. And all of the lists given differ from the others. There's overlap, 
but they are also very different. Uh, and there is not one comprehensive list. So some of the questions that I personally have wrestled with, so what are the spiritual gifts? How many are there? And are they still relevant? Are they all still relevant today? And so I want to briefly consider those questions uh, this morning and hopefully um, see from Scripture what, what the answer to some of that may be. First of all, I want us to consider the other list. So we had a list there of nine gifts. Um, but there's five other places in Scripture where other lists are given, and I'm going to just read those quickly. In 1 Corinthians 12, just at the end of this chapter, there's a different list. Um, and God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So there we have a number of different gifts identified as well. Romans 12. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, notice according to the grace, this is grace gifts again, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, or he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. So this is a different list for the Roman church. Ephesians 4, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Again, some news, new ones pop up here that we haven't seen in other lists. And then 1 Peter 4 is a more generic uh, passage. As every man hath received the gift, so even so minister the same to one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do so. Do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be all praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So depending on how you combine these groups of lists, these different lists um, of spiritual gifts, you end up with close to 20 or even more different kinds of gifts that are given in these six different um, passages of Scripture. Why is it that Paul's letter, Paul's list of gifts, is different for the Corinthian church than it is for the letter that he wrote to the Ephesian church, and it's different than what he wrote to the Roman church? And, you know, there are similarities, but they certainly aren't 
the same. And for me, it would really be nice if there would be a clear and a comprehensive list of these gifts of grace that the Holy Spirit provides to believers. We'll come back to that, but then there's another challenge as well with these lists. <clears throat> the question comes up whether all of these gifts are still active today. Or were some of these only available for a limited time in the early church, uh, in the first century churches and so forth? And there are certainly those and I believe that this is what was a more widely held view in the past than it may be currently, but there are those that would hold the view that miraculous gifts, like the list that we would, mostly of the list that we would have had in our text this morning, were only given to the very early church. And this is known as the cessationist uh, view of the gifts basically claiming that some gifts have ceased to be used since the early days of the church. Uh, at one point in my life, that is largely the view I think that I would have embraced. I wouldn't have known the terminology, but I think that that's how I would have tended to think about it. Because of my difficulty or inability to understand spiritual gifts from any, it, it didn't make sense otherwise um, to me. Uh, but I have changed my perspective, and I believe that the cessationist view is inconsistent with Scripture and church history, and I want to give you several reasons why I believe this to be true. First of all, there is no indication of differing church ages throughout history. The apostles wrote in the New Testament of the last days and the return of Christ literally as if it could happen any moment. That's how they were thinking about it. As such, I believe that there is only one church age that spans from Pentecost until the second coming of Christ and uh, there is nothing in Scripture to differentiate that the time of the early church is different from the rest of the church age uh, or the rest of church history. So that's, that's the first reason I believe that that is not accurate. <clears throat> Secondly, the cessationist view was derived largely from the idea of personal experience or personal knowledge. The assumption was that since we don't see or hear about these miraculous gifts, they must not exist. And when we, that's a pretty big concept of oneself, if you really think about it. Our perspective of life is very, very narrow. And the church is a worldwide organism. And the things that we experience and see locally is radically different from that which may be experienced, uh, which believers in other parts of the world experience. And to presume that our experiences and knowledge is adequate to make such a claim only 
reveals how myopic and how myopic we really are, uh, how nearsighted we really are. Thirdly, there are examples, many examples, of miracles throughout church history. And um, these miracles aren't always manifest in the same way, but nonetheless, they are supernatural events spawned by believers in churches around the globe. Um, in Martyr's Mirror, there are several accounts of miraculous things that happen either immediately prior to or even after death that cannot be explained any other way, which would have been in the 1500s. Um, I came across a right, the Pilgrim Marpeck was an early Anabaptist uh, writer, or and um, I, I don't know if he was a pastor or not, I can't say for sure, but he did a bunch of writings from the 1500s as well. And this is something that he wrote. Moreover, one also marvels that when, when one sees how the faithful God, who after all overflows with goodness, raises from the dead several such brothers and sisters of Christ after they were hanged, drowned, or killed in other ways. Even today, they are found alive, and we can hear their own testimony. Which indicate that in the time of the Anabaptists, there were some miraculous resurrections. Um, you know, and we also know more modern day or since then, you know, the stories of George Mueller and the miraculous answers to prayer. Uh, I don't know that you can accredit that to anything other than miracles. And I believe that even today, this very day, that there are miraculous events being experienced by believers around the world, such as in Afghanistan or North Korea or Iran or China, you name it. We don't hear about it, and we probably never will on this side of eternity. But the Holy Spirit still gives supernatural grace gifts to these believers when, they, when it's needed. And for these reasons, I really do believe that each of the spiritual gifts listed in these passages are still active today somewhere, or certainly possible to be active. Now, as to the, com the comprehensive list, I believe that if there were a specific and limited number of spiritual gifts, we would have a clear list from Scripture. As I've studied this passage and the topics of grace gifts over the last several weeks, we can see and understand that spiritual gifts given to believers will vary from congregation to congregation. It certainly did in Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. As the Holy Spirit determines what is needed in that particular congregation. And I also believe that that may mean there are other gifts that may not be explicitly listed in these lists that we have read. What are, might be some of those be? I don't know, but maybe something like hospitality or intercessory prayer or discipleship or ability to aid handicapped or work with handicapped children or, you know, there, there's just 
there's other things that those that the spirit can manifest and other gifts that may be included. Now, some would say, well, you can just group these into one of these other categories, uh, and maybe you can do that. But I believe that there is more of an open-ended aspect of this. Yes, there will be similarities of gifts between churches, but there's also going to be distinctive differences. The gifts within this congregation vary from the next church down the road. Based on lists that are provided in Scripture, it seems like there's four broad groups of gifts. Um, the one leading or organizing gifts, another speaking gifts, and another serving or doing gifts, and then the fourth is miracle gifts. And I would say that in most churches, you are going to find a mix of the first three for sure. Those of that lead, those that speak, and those that serve. Generally, you will find those in every congregation. Any attempt to mimic or replicate other congregations' giftings and so forth are going to fail because there's simply no two churches that are alike. And it seems that the lists given in Scripture are specific to those congregations to where the letter was written. That doesn't mean we can't learn from it. The Corinthian church had been richly gifted with miraculous gifts, but they had been misused, and rather than unifying the church, it was bringing division. And Paul is reminding them that these gifts of grace are, not, are, are to be used to benefit others not for their own personal benefit. I'm going to uh, quickly identify five characteristics about supernatural grace gifts that I think we need to know that are doled out by the Holy Spirit to every believer in every church. First of all, the Holy Spirit personally gives every believer a supernatural gift of grace and decides himself what that will be. The Spirit determines what each individual gift is. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the last part of it says, the Spirit apportions to each one individually as he wills. Secondly, usually, and I'm not going to say always, but usually your supernatural gift of grace is not one of your natural strengths. The Holy Spirit wants to empower and energize you and to put to use that unnatural gift, something that doesn't come naturally. Think about what we would, how we would act if it was a natural gift of ours. Acts, well, the first part of verse 11 that I just read, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. In Acts 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The ability to use our gift of grace is supernatural power or energy that doesn't come from within ourselves, but only from God through the Holy Spirit. We can never realize this supernatural power of the Holy Spirit if we don't step out and act in faith, or if we are simply acting out of our own strengths. 
Thirdly, the primary or maybe the only reason the Spirit gives us supernatural gifts of grace is to build up and benefit our brothers and sisters, which ultimately brings honor to Jesus Christ himself, the head of the body. Verse 7 of the text that we read, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. And we're going to see a lot more of this in the uh, passage that follows the text this morning. Every person, every gift of grace that's distributed to individuals is there for a reason, because it is needed. And like a human family, the church is a spiritual family, and we want the best for everyone in our family. We stick up for each other. We help each other. We care about each other. We sacrifice ourselves for each other because that's what a family does. Fourthly, we are responsible and accountable for how we use, misuse, or neglect the supernatural gift the Holy Spirit has given us. Again, back to 1 Peter 4.10, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Timothy must have had a challenge with this. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, Neglect not the gift that is in thee. And then in the second, uh, second Timothy, Paul also wrote, And for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift or the charismata, the charisma of God. By now, you're probably all wondering what your supernatural gift of grace is. How do you discover this gift that's been given to you? My challenge is that you start praying and asking God to show you by opening your eyes and creating awareness of needs around you and specific ways to serve others. And then start taking the initiative to serve, to build up your brothers and sisters around you with literally no expectation of recognition. And that is hard for us. I know that. As you do that, I believe the Spirit will develop a strong sense of fulfillment as you look to find ways to meet needs and to build up your brothers and sisters, all while doing it only to help those people and to exalt Jesus Christ. It's not about pursuing my own agenda or advancing something personally. And the last thing that I just wanted to mention here is that your supernatural gift of grace may change over the course of your lifetime. And the key is to heed the Spirit at all times. We may have a, may, God may call us to a specific area of need at one point in our lives. Later on, it may be something different, and we need to be open to that. Each one of us has been given a supernatural gift of grace. And the reality is that the body of Christ needs your gift, or else the Holy Spirit wouldn't have given it to you. Every gift is important, every gift is needed, and the church suffers when those gifts are buried or suppressed. So 
So what are you doing with your supernatural gift of grace? Thought of Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. Will Jesus tell us on the judgment day, well done, good and faithful servant? And my challenge is that we allow, that we enable the power of the Holy Spirit to energize, to fuel that supernatural gift that he has given to each one of us. Let's stand together for a benediction. Father, we come to you in humility this morning, not fully understanding um, what these spiritual gifts are and how they all function. But at the same time, we come with incredible gratitude and, um, and awe of the Spirit working in each one of us what He wants to accomplish within this specific congregation. I pray as we go from here that you would, the spirit, your Spirit would minister to each one of us identifying those ways to reach out, to serve others, to identify and to cultivate and to allow you to energize that gift that you have placed within our hearts. Dismiss us with your blessing and go with us from here. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.